The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judea and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of the fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to do work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humble, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks, and the holes of the ground, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. From before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty, from when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in those nostrils in breath, for of what account is he? In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem 
when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over the assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Well, good morning. We have uh, quite the passage before us, don't we? Um, before we continue on, though, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, it is our desire uh, to not be those who have you speaking to us, but us not hearing. Um, the very fact that you, the, the Lord of the universe, would speak to us is uh, beyond our ability to comprehend. And so, Lord, we want... We want to hear. We want to receive the life that you have for us. We want to be shaped by you. And so we ask, as we do every week, uh, that you would do your miraculous work in us, enabling us to hear, enabling us to be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe... Uh, and I think I've been saying this uh, in the last few weeks, it's one of the convictions that really has come through the sabbatical for me, that God's ambition for this church outstrips our own. Uh, to use the words of Jesus, God's ambition for us, His calling for us is to be a city set on a hill showing light in the midst of darkness around us. That, that God calls us to be so strangely Christ-like, so beautifully full of love, full of God, that our very existence stands as a living miracle to the world around us, by which when they look and they see, they recognize something is taking place that has to be of God. This, I believe, is God's calling, His ambition for us, for Trinity, for, from, from the moment of the beginning of our story, this is what God has been doing. When he first gathered a group of people to start this church, when he gathered it larger, when, when he brought us through some very tumultuous times in leadership, as we have at times experienced the need for financial kind of deliverance and have seen it happening, as he has brought so many different gifted people to this church, it's all been towards this goal that we would be this miraculous sign in the very way we are so that the world would see the gospel. That, that is God's ambition for this church. It is His calling. And, and I believe we are already seeing this take place. I can speak personally of how I have experienced 
what I would describe as supernatural expressions of love, love that can only be explained by the work of God from you in a way that has strengthened and shaped me. And my guess is many of you have experienced the same. God is at work enabling this church to be what he has called it to be. And it's because of that, because of that just um, miraculous calling that outstrips our understanding because of the great potential that this congregation and and, and truly any faithful congregation has, but I'm speaking of ours this morning, that this congregation has, that it is important also to be aware that there is a danger. There is a threat that looms before us that threatens to derail this church. There is a temptation that could keep us from ever becoming the church that God has established us to be. And and that threat is the threat of human pride. And, And that means that for God to lift us up in the way that he intends to, he will first have to bring us low. So our passage begins first with uh, a compelling vision. And what I I want us to understand is that this vision, when we hear it, it is meant to captivate us because this is his vision for the church. This is God's vision for us. And, And it's a vision that centers on a very tall mountain. Perhaps you noticed the very beginning, that's, that's what God says. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. The city of God, Jerusalem, the temple of God, sat atop a mountain, Mount Zion. And, and what we are told as this vision begins is that there will be a day where that mountain goes higher than all the others. Of course, it's figurative language, it's not literal, but what it's speaking of is there will be a day, God says, where I will make my people esteemed, where, where there will be glory given to my city, and, and it will look greater than all the other things that are around. And in that day, he says, people will take notice. Not, not just people close by, but people from all over the world. And, and they will start having conversations with each other. It's like, we should go there. Come on, let's, let's go there because I honestly believe that if we do, we will, we will be able to hear from God. God will actually in, instruct us and teach us the things that we've always needed to know. I mean, that's what we see. It says at the very end of verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Do you notice that, that imagery of flowing? Nations are streaming, except like a river normally goes down, it is flowing up a mountain because the gravitational pull of this glorious city of God, the glorious temple is so great that people find it compelling. Come, let us go there. This is the vision that God has for his church. This is what God intends even for Trinity. That we might be made so captivatingly beautiful that those around say, come, let's check this out because there seems to be something that's going on. 
Now, I wonder if that just seems, well, honestly, unlikely to you. However hard it might be for you to believe that, let me tell you that it is even harder for the original audience to believe this. Remember, this is being spoken to the the nation of Judah, and in this moment, they are crumbled. They are almost completely destroyed. Their, Their cities all around them are in ruins, and nations are streaming, but not to learn, but to destroy them. They're not even sure they're going to be around for the next generation, and yet they are told this vision there will be a day where you'll be so great that everyone will come and learn from you. How... How hard that would have been to understand, how, how unlikely, how, how ridiculous it would have seemed. And yet it actually happened. So think for a moment about the first century right after Jesus ascends into heaven. There are 120 Christians in the world, and they're all gathered in one place, how, how weak they probably felt. But you know, many of you know the story. The Spirit comes, and they start speaking about Jesus, and they start going throughout the world and, and speaking about Him wherever they go, and, and things change. And, and here's the thing. These 120 people, three centuries later, has become millions upon millions. Most historians believe that the majority, more than half of the entire Roman Empire, has come to Christ. That's millions from all over, from from Egypt, from Rome, from Israel, from Greece. What has happened? The, The mountain of God has been established and nations have streamed to it saying, come, let us go and see this. Now, now, so that we have in our ideas, in our minds, the right ideas, this was not usually like this gigantic thousands upon thousands. You know, historians say if you actually figure this out, it's, it's roughly a growth of only about 3 or 4% per year. You know, a typical church of maybe 40 or 50 people would see a new family come every couple of years, and then another family every couple of years. But slowly over time, God, because God doesn't see things just in terms of days or years. He sees things in terms of millennia. From his perspective, the nations are streaming. And, and we go, oh man, wouldn't it have been great to be alive in that time? But the thing is, that, that's not the only time that this vision has been fulfilled. Do you know, a hundred years ago, by many assessments, in all of the continent of Africa, there were probably about 10 million Christians. More than half a billion identify as following Christ today. A half billion. In 1949, when, you know, kind of China, when communism kind of starts, you know, like leading China where communism sets in, there was by many estimates about a million Christians and it became illegal to follow Christ. Now, by most estimates, it's not one million, but over 100 million. Do you understand the nations are flowing uphill to the mountain of God, to his city, to his people? This would have been just crazy for Israel to imagine that this could happen. Even the 120 believers to imagine that people from everywhere. And yet that is exactly what God did. God said, this is what's going to happen. No one would have believed it, and yet he has fulfilled it. And we should understand that this is how God works with his church. And we shouldn't think, hey, that was just something for then, that's just something for over there. This is the way that God works. He's saying this is his design for his people. This is his design for Trinity. 
And so it is important for us as we recognize this ambition to also realize that in this context, as God is laying out his vision for his people, he immediately addresses what is the key threat, the key danger that stands in the way from his people becoming what God has created them to be, and that is human pride. Now, I should clarify that when I'm talking about human pride, I'm And I'm meaning something very specific. In our passage, a couple times it talks about the pride of man. That's what I'm talking about. And most of the time, I think when we think of pride, we think very individually. Like, you know, if someone is proud who just kind of seems to think that they're better than anyone else, or maybe they're proud because they're not willing to ever ask for help when they need it. And that truly is pride. But but that's not the only kind of pride. There can also be a group pride, if you think about it. So think about maybe the 19th century um, as... England is going into Africa and how it seems to be the common theme that we, the civilized, are bringing culture to the savages. As if somehow those who are from Europe are of a higher quality, are, are, are more human than the people in Africa. That's, that's, a, that's a national pride. Right? You can have people who maybe on their own individually don't think highly of themselves, but they still think of themselves collectively as superior to those people. That's a group pride, right? Not just individually. When we're talking about human pride, we're extending that to an even larger group. Human pride is that pride, that confidence we have in human abilities. It is viewing ourselves as a human race more highly than we ought, as more capable, more self-sufficient than we truly are. Perhaps one of the earliest times in Scripture we see this problem of human pride is in the Tower of Babel. Perhaps you're familiar with the story where all people kind of come together and say, let us make a tower that will go all the way to the heavens and make a great name for ourselves. And and that might not seem like such a big deal, but commentators will tell you what they're basically saying is let's replace God. Let's kind kind of displace him because we can be up in the heavens. We can make a name for ourselves. God is now redundant. We can take care of this on our own. And that really is what the heart of human pride is. It is thinking that we can make God redundant. So to tease this out, human pride is when we decide, you know what, I don't really need God to be complete, to be happy, because I can find it in in other people, in friends and family. I can find it in, in the joys of human culture. That's all I need. Thanks. Human pride is when we decide that we don't need to depend on God to protect us and care for us, because, hey, we have modern medicine we have financial security, we're set. Human pride is when we decide that we don't need to have God tell us who he is because, you know what, we can kind of figure it out on our own. See, the problem with human pride is it is subtle. You know, normally we can recognize faults by comparing ourselves to others. If we see that we're not as generous as others, we realize that's a problem with ourselves. But when it's something that infects everybody, then it doesn't seem like it's anything. We've talked about how in our day, uh, if, if, if life is viewed as like a digital picture, we have cropped God out. Yeah, we believe God exists, but we don't really need to think much about him. He's not relevant. That's, that's human pride. We are fine without him. And it infects our age, and it goes deep And really, honestly, it infects every age. This was true of the age that Israel was in. They didn't have secularism. They had idolatry, man-made designer idols to fit your needs. That's another version of human pride. 
And the problem that we see in our passage is it's not just the world out there that is infected with human pride. It is God's people who are infected with human pride. So we see this in the, when there's that shift from the beauty of the vision to suddenly kind of this condemnation. And it speaks of how they are, that is the people of Israel in verse 6, full of things from the east. They have filled themselves with stuff from other nations. And then it goes on, their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end to their treasures. They have decided that the stuff, the wealth of humanity is enough to make them full. Their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. The stuff of human might and human power is enough to protect them. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. They've decided that they can figure out who God is. Thank you very much. They are infected by human pride. And that's why when you get to verse 11, we see God speaking of the haughty looks of man and the lofty pride of men. This is a deep problem for Israel. And of course it is. Do you see how completely antithetical this human pride is from the vision that God has for his people? Remember, the vision God has for his people is that they will be so full of God, so full of his world, word that all the nations will want to come to learn from God through them. And what's happening instead? They are so full of the nations and of human pride that God is pushed out and has no more space. As long as human pride reigns, the vision that God has for his church can never be fulfilled. That was true then, and that, of course, is still true today. Have you ever wondered why it is that if someone is going through a really difficult time. At least sometimes it seems like they say, I want to go anywhere else to solve this problem other than the church. They'll be willing to go to the internet, they'll be willing to talk to people, but not the church. Why? I suspect if we drill deep, when we see people being uninterested in getting help from the church, it's because they have experienced or they believe they will experience human pride, even though they might never identify it as such. So, so they might not ever want to step foot in the church because the church seems to be a place that has everything together. That, that people seem to already have everything in their control and they're afraid they will be judged or even worse, they will be fixed. And what is that that they're experiencing? Human pride. Somehow in the church we believe that we're fine when we're not. Or sometimes some people are... are reticence to come to the church because they feel like the church is too political. Because maybe they've experienced a church that seems to be so keen on, on gaining political power. And, and if they are experiencing that to the degree that they are, what they've seen is a church who's decided that the real solution to the problems is not through the power of Christ, but through the power of politics. That's human pride. Again and again, we can see that so much of what turns people off about church, whether they realize it or not, as human pride, whether we're talking about the abuses of leadership, or whether we're talking about the inane nothingness that sometimes is preached because we want to sound wise rather than sounding biblical. That's human pride. 
or, or whether we're talking about sometimes the feeling of a disingenuousness where they say one thing but they clearly act another, showing what they really believe in. That's human pride. The thing is, it doesn't have to be this way. If we go back in history, um, to the middle of the second century in the Roman Empire, there was this terrible plague that took place. Many died. It was devastating. So when another plague happens about a century or so later, you can just imagine the kind of panic that would happen. When people started seeing symptoms of the disease, they would immediately cast that person out, even if it was a spouse, even if it was a child, they were thrown out on the streets. Um, One account from the Times speaks of how people pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as as dirt. There was so much fear. And that is pretty much how everyone was reacting to this horrible plague, this disease that was spreading across the world, except for one group of people, and that's the Christians. The Christians became known for the people who would care for the sick, not just their own, but for other sick who were thrown out into the streets. And, and what that meant was they were exposed and many of them died. One pastor of the time writes, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and they died in their stead. Why? Because undoubtedly, if you are a believer, you still don't want to get sick. If you're a believer, it's still your natural intuitions to say, I need to get disconnected from that because I need to control the situation. But that is not how they responded because they were a people who, before they were proud, were humble. And their confidence was not in themselves, but their confidence was in Christ. In that day, mercy was seen as weakness, but Jesus says, I'm calling you to be merciful. And so in obedience, they sought to show mercy. In fact, not only did they hear Jesus say that, but they knew that they themselves were objects of Christ's mercy. And so how could they not show that to the world around them? And as this pastor goes on to say that I quoted, part of what motivated them is they didn't need to be afraid. They knew that death was not something they needed to fear because Christ had won. They, they have this humble confidence that enabled them to respond to this threat of disease differently from the rest of the world. And is it any wonder that the nations started flowing as God exalted his people? But do you hear the order? It is people who have been brought low that God lifted up. For us to be this this city that is raised above all, for us to be exalted, we must first be brought low. And that's, that's where this passage takes us. The, the, the problem that Israel has is being infected by pride. And God will not let that pride have the last word. He is going to give his people humility. He is going to bring them low so that he can lift them up. That's, that's what most of chapter 2 and the rest of chapter 3 is about. He, he gives them a gift of humility through a number of different ways. He, he begins by giving them kind of a, a, a vision to help them to understand how empty their human pride is. Did you notice verse 12? 
the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. He says, there will be a day where what is true will be made clear. And, and he starts with metaphor, all the things that we associate with greatness. The, the greatest trees, we might speak of the redwoods. The greatest of mountains, maybe we think of the Rockies, will be brought low. And then, then he moves from metaphor to the literal meaning. All of the, the towers that are filled with might and seem so powerful will be nothing. All of the, the greatest riches of the world that, that are so impressive will be nothing. And, and the reason is... Because God will make himself known. Verse 19, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. God is saying there will come a day. Right now what seems so strong And me, who seems so small, that's only because I'm hidden from you right now. But there will come a day when the sunshine will seem like a flickering candle compared to the brightness of my presence. Where the greatest mountain will seem as insubstantial as a sandcastle as I come in power. When everything that seems so big and so strong and so reliable to you will be exposed as nothing compared to me and my greatness. And you will in that moment see the utter emptiness of all that you've put your confidence in. Of all that is human pride. He concludes, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Have you thought about this? We are designed biologically to recognize how dependent we are. Because every few seconds, we are depending on something outside of ourselves so that we can keep living. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. We are small, we are small, dependent creatures. For of what account are we, he says? See the reality, let, let the reality be exposed before my greatness and stop putting your confidence in human pride. So he gives us to seek our humility, this vision of how things really are. But he knows that, that human pride goes deeper than that. Human pride is a cancer. It is not something that can just easily be solved through a deeper understanding. And so, so God's to give his people humility goes deeper than this. If you were here last week, you know that God chose for his people to be overrun by the enemy nations. If we were to continue in chapter 3, we would see God choosing his people to go through all sorts of suffering, through leadership falling apart, through poverty. We cannot avoid the reality that we have in these chapters. God is choosing to have his people, whom he loves, go through intense suffering. And, And what we need to understand is that he is not doing this to destroy his people, but to heal them. He's not doing this because he hates his people, but because he loves them. Because he knows in a way that you and I do not just how lethal human pride is, and he will not rest until he has healed us of 
And so just very quickly, when we move to chapter 4, those last few verses that were read, do you notice we once again, to kind of get to this glorious picture, we're, we're once again in Jerusalem and in, in Zion, and it's beautiful. We're back to chapter 2, but now we're given more information about how we got there. It says that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem. Do you hear that? God is going to make this happen. He's going to realize this vision, this ambition for his people by humbling them and by healing them, even though that will mean suffering. And some of us know exactly what I'm talking about right now because we have experienced that from God's hand as well. God tells us those that I love discipline and we sometimes have experienced the hardness the difficulty of God's discipline but you need to understand that it is to humble you and to deepen your confidence in him because those that God loves he brings low that he might lift them up now the tension that we actually have in these chapters is that even this doesn't seem enough. I mean, remember in chapter 1, God is like, why? Even though you are being brought low, why do you not repent? There needs to be an even deeper work. There's, there's a sense that Israel, that God's people need to die completely before they can be brought back to life. And this only gets resolved, it's hinted at when we get further on in Isaiah, but it's only fully resolved when we understand that God's ultimate work of humbling his people and rescuing them is at the cross. See, the cross is where we are brought lower than anywhere else. Consider what the cross tells you about you and me. We were so foolish as humanity that when the very Son of God came to rescue us, we instead killed him. We are so powerless to take care of ourselves, to save us from our own situation, that it took the very Son of God to step in and do what we could not do. Our sin is so great that the only solution to your sin and my sin was the very Son of God dying for us. Here's the reality. For us to be brought low God chose to go even lower that he might lift us up. And if we have any doubt that this work is done out of love, we need only look at the cross and see just how much it cost God to heal us from our pride. I, I believe that this vision that we have in chapter 2 is not something that was just for a past time. And it's just not something for a people out there. God gives us this vision to captivate us. To help us know this is where he wants us to go. And that means, if we're trying to say, what do I do with this passage, we need to recognize that what stands in the way of us fulfilling this calling of being the beautiful church for the good of the world around us is our own human pride. And what that means 
is we need to recognize that God in his love is seeking to humble us, and our best response is to welcome it. As, as God speaks to us and says, look at the emptiness, we need to hear him and say, yes, why am I trusting in these things? They are empty compared to God. As God brings you and me through times of difficulty, we can recognize that his love has not stopped and receive from his hand his work of healing. And more than anything else, again and again, God invites us to look at the cross and allow him to teach us again and again, not only about his love, but also of our deep need for it. And the Apostle Peter is someone who, who deeply understood this truth. He was someone who himself struggled deeply with pride, and we know of his failure and how he was humbled. And so it seems appropriate to conclude with his very instructions that seem to sum up what this passage is telling us. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's spend a moment in prayer humbling ourselves before God, maybe acknowledging our need before him. And then I will lead us in prayer in a few minutes' time.